Hello, welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're back in the podcast studio. I've got a new guest for us. And for all those listening at home, I want to welcome Jill Bertolini to the Project Purple Podcast. Did I say your last name correct, Joe? You sure did. All right. I've, we, we just had a, a doctor from Verona, Italy, Giuseppe Maleo, and then now we're going with Jill Bertolini. We could put out like a pasta factory or something. With I, think the... I think we could. I think we could. And throw in <laughs> throw in Dino Varelli in that mix too, right? Like people will start talking here. Well, Jill, right? thank thank you for joining us on the Project Purple podcast, and uh, really appreciate it. So as we do with all of our guests, um, the first segment of our podcast is really dedicated to our guests to share their background, what brings them to the Project Purple podcast today. And before I start, I always say that, you know, this is your opportunity to share your journey with pancreatic cancer. Um, And as uh, we've said before, you can go as far back or you can stay as high level as you want. And with that, Jill, the mic is yours. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate um, being able to do this today. So I um, I guess, where does my journey begin? My cancer journey actually begins in 2019. My husband and, well, fiance at the time, we were about a week and a half out from our wedding and I got called back for a second mammogram mm. and the radiologist walked into the room and I knew that something was wrong. And that was 11 days before our wedding. And uh, we got married on August 17th of 2019. And we had an amazing honeymoon in Tanzania. We did a safari. And one week to the day coming home from our honeymoon, October 1st of 2019, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Oh, my God. Um, so we kind of knew something was wrong during during the wedding and, and during the honeymoon. But we you know, put it, put it in the back of our mind as much as we could. And, and we move forward with all of our plans. And I, um, I'm blessed enough to work for Hartford healthcare and I'm surrounded by some of the most amazing surgeons in the, in the Northeast. Um, I would argue the U S but I'm biased. Um, <laughs> I'd agree and, with you. And <laughs> yeah, there's uh, just, I'm, very lucky. My my role for Hartford Healthcare, I was um, I was the regional director for medical staff services for um, Mid State Medical Center and Hospital of Central Connecticut. So I worked very closely with a lot of these surgeons and uh, the chiefs of these medical departments. Um, so it was very comforting to have these people with so much knowledge right at my fingertips. Um, and I had a double mastectomy 30 days later, and they were able to get all of the cancer out during that surgery. And I, um, I didn't need any radiation, and I didn't need any chemotherapy. So I was uh, very, very lucky with that breast cancer situation. Um, they took a couple lymph nodes, and I was cancer-free within 30 days of being diagnosed. And wow. I... Um, always kind of felt, I never really felt part of the, as I call it now, the cancer club because Mm -hmm. I didn't receive, I didn't need medication. I didn't need any treatment. I just, I went in for a surgery. I was home three days later and it was done. Um, you know, obviously the reconstruction part wasn't done, but Mm -hmm. you know, that was easy compared to the double mastectomy. Um, but the fear of living with cancer was somewhat done. I always kind of felt in the back of my head, back of my mind that there was, I was constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop that, you know, this was, this was just kind of like the introduction. Um, I, I could never shake that feeling. And, um, as we went into, well, then COVID hit. (laughs) So, um, it was, it was easy to heal from all the surgeries because I couldn't go anywhere anyway. Um, and as we went into the late summer fall of 2020, um, my husband and I bought this amazing property out in Salem, Connecticut, and it was our dream home. And I was feeling not great, 
Um, but I always chalked everything up to, I was still healing from all the surgeries It had only been, you know, at that point, um, six months since my last surgery. And so I just kept chalking it up to that. I was overdoing it from the move. And, um, two weeks later I ended up in the emergency room with what I thought they were going to tell me was going to be gallstones or something Mm -hmm. like that. And, uh, the doctor came into the room first. They told me I was pregnant and I'm 42 years old and, um, had no plans of having children at at my forties. Um, and so I kept telling them they had to be wrong. That was not what was wrong with me. Um, I, they needed to do more tests and find out what was going on with me. I was in a lot of pain. Um, and the they finally sent me in for a CAT scan um, after I had to sign my life away because I was testing positive on a pregnancy test. And uh, the doctor came back into the room after the CAT scan, and he it, this is still in the emergency room, and he said um, something popped up on the scan. We're going to admit you, and I just I knew right then and there I knew. Um, and I was at Bacchus hospital, which mm-hmm. is closest to my home, but not, it was not my hospital, the hospital that I work for. And I was admitted. My husband called my boss and, um, we transferred, I was able to transfer over to my home hospital, hospital, central Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And, um, my boss got Dr. Shipper involved and had him start looking at my scans and Dr. Shipper was the first one to come in. And I worked with him at that point for a year and a half and I could just tell by the look on his face that he did not have good news for me. And, um, nobody wanted to say it was cancer at that point because they hadn't done the biopsies. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I looked at him and, and he's an amazing surgeon and I, and he, explained that there was a mass on my pancreas and a mass, multiple masses on my liver. Mm. Um, and I looked at him and I said, well, you can take it out, right? Like you can do surgery. And, um, the look on his face was crushing when he said, Jill, it's not operable. And I didn't really know what that meant in that moment. Mm -hmm. And, and I didn't understand why Dr. Shipper couldn't operate on me. He, he's, an amazing surgeon. Um, and I really didn't know anything full disclosure. I didn't know anything about pancreatic cancer. Um, so they did the liver biopsy and it, you know, it was confirmed and that was also confirmation of why I was testing positive on a pregnancy test. Um, the, I guess the, spots of my liver were creating elevated beta HCGs. And so I was uh, testing positive for several weeks, which made me ineligible for any immunotherapy treatment. Hmm. Um, And I was probably about three to four weeks later, I finally told my oncologist that I, I don't want to wait any longer. Let's start chemotherapy. Um, because the first meeting with the oncologist, one of the toughest questions I asked him, and again, this is another another physician that I worked with. Um, I said, "How long do I have? What you know? What does this mean exactly?" And and he explained that pancreatic cancer is not curable, mm-hmm. um, and that if I did nothing, at best, I would have three months because it was a mass on the tail of my pancreas. It was all over my liver. And there were nodules that were showing up in my lungs. Um, And with treatment, he gave me the average, which is about a year. And he kept reminding me that um, I'm young, I'm healthy, I'm fit, and that I could beat the average. Um, And... I started on chemo, like I said, about three to four weeks later, and the chemo was on three different chemos at the time. Just 
annihilated my body. I dropped 25 pounds within the first six weeks. Um, I was in constant pain and around Christmas time, I started prepping my family that I was going to stop chemo because I was not having a quality of life and I didn't, I didn't want to live, uh, doubled over in pain and in bed for the remainder of my days. Um, cause it, at that point it felt like days cause I, I was so sick. And one of the chemos ended up being um, a, a chemo that causes neuropathy. And mm-hmm. there's, I guess they only allow five or six rounds anyway. So we don't end up with permanent neuropathy. Mm-hmm. And that was the chemo that was causing all of the problems. And they took me off of it at round five. And within a month, I put on 10 pounds and then 12 pounds. And the weight started mm-hmm. coming back on. I was keeping the weight on. I was no longer in pain. Um, and by February, the beginning of February, I was feeling healthier than I was when I was diagnosed. Wow. And I'm super active again. I have tons of energy. Um, and now my husband and I are able to really start to check off some bucket list items Mm -hmm. and, you know, some things that were on the five, 10, 15 year plan are now on the five, 10, 15 month plan. Um, you know, so it's really important for us to really get to experience the things that we wanted to experience together, um, throughout our lives. And so we are just going full force at everything we can think of and really, uh, you know, the saying stop and smell the roses. I, I do that every day now. And, um, Every day is, is, I feel selfish on some days because mm-hmm. every, every day is about, um, what do I want to do? What do I want to experience? And what is going to fill my cup that day? Um, I, I've, my friends and family have done an amazing job of, of just being positive and laughing with me. Um, anytime somebody cries around me, I tell them that there's no crying in cancer. Um, which we all know is not true, but you know, I, it's really important for me to, to maintain a positive outlook and have fun and not be basically living my funeral. Um, it, it felt like that the first couple months it was, you know, I, I felt like people would come over and tell me how great it is to know me and, and how blessed they are to know me. And, and I just felt like people were reading my eulogy to me. Um, but I also had to understand that everybody was going through their own shock and grieving process with finding out that I had terminal cancer. Um, and you know, I, I, I've since I've in the very beginning, I tried to stay off any websites that talked about pancreatic cancer and, (laughs) and, uh, how long people had and how long people lived and, as I started to come to terms with my diagnosis more and more, I started reading about it more and more. And, and I learned that the reason I never had any symptoms until it had already spread was because I have a mass on the tail of my pancreas. Um, and the reason that it's not operable is because it's all over my liver. Um, and, you know, those were, those were some hard things to come to terms with. But I, I had to, I had to keep reminding myself how lucky I am that I, again, that I have these amazing physicians that are um, accessible to me in their, in their medical role, but also they're my friends, and um, you know they offer, they offer great support in more ways than one, and I, I, I feel so honored and, and blessed that I know these people. Um, I have an amazing oncologist and I stay in touch with my breast surgeon probably three times a week. Um, we've grown, we've grown very close and have an amazing relationship and, um, you know, these physicians that I worked with, they check in on me just to say hello. Um, you know, and, and so 
it's a very different, it's a very different type of relationship that I have with a group of doctors. I think that, you know, a lot of people um, don't get to experience and don't really get to see the, the human and friendly side of, of physicians, especially when they're delivering really tough news. Um, and I get to see both sides of that. And I, I feel very, very lucky, very honored that I'm in that position. Um, so that's, that's, that's the cancer journey. And, you know, today is um, two days out from chemo. I do chemo every two weeks. I'm a 40, I'm on a 46 hour pump. Um, so the chemo days are a little bit hard because I feel so good and I have so much energy and within 20 minutes of receiving chemo, I feel like I got hit by a Mack truck. Mm-hmm. Um, it just zaps all of my energy. Um, so I start moving a lot slower. Uh, and everything tastes like cardboard for about five days. Um, but that being said, I still, my appetite is still good. And I, I've been maintaining weight now for, uh, about two months and I just had scans two weeks ago and they can't, or three weeks ago and the nodules on my lungs are gone. And the spots in my liver are less dense Mm -hmm. and the, uh, mass of my pancreas hasn't grown in, uh, since December. That's amazing. Yeah. So that was really, really good news. And I just, you know, I just felt like it was, it it was just proof that I'm doing really well and I am going to beat the odds. Um, and, but when you, for me anyway, when I'm, you know, the days that I'm feeling really well, I have this kind of, kind of, sad moments where I, I know that the days that I'm not going to feel well are coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody's got a crystal ball. It could be six months. It could be four months. It could be hopefully six years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it's, 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 it is hard when, you know, I'm super active and I'm able to do the things that I love. And, you know, I have a horse and when I'm riding my horse, and I, I know that there's, there's going to be, there's going to come a time where, you know, I have to stop riding. Um, and there's going to come a time where I can't walk my dogs in the woods anymore. And, uh, that's, those are the hard moments that, that I have, um, you know, usually when I'm driving and alone in the car, (laughs) um, but I think, you know, anybody going through this has those moments where, you know, we, we feel good and, and we want to continue to feel good, but we know that we know that the bad days are coming. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's a balance. Um, I think I'm balancing it pretty well. Um, my friends and family tell me I'm balancing it well, so I'll take their word for it. Well, Jill, I just, um, I'm taking a lot of notes here and I just stopped to take some notes and just hear what you're saying. And it's just so amazing. We've got so many questions here. Yeah. But I want to back up a little bit. Sure. Sure. So prior to 2019, like you're in the medical field, you work in a hospital. Like I would assume that you're seeing your, excuse me, your doctors, your, you know, going for wellness checks, doing mammograms prior to all this health wise, any issues or any family history of either breast cancer or pancreatic cancer? Uh, no issues health wise. Um, I, uh, my maternal grandmother had breast cancer and I have another relative on, on her side of the family that also had breast cancer. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but other than my grandmother, that's the only immediate family with, with any cancer. Any cancer, yeah. And, um, my father passed away in 1987 of, um, a heart attack. Uh-huh. And so to my knowledge, there's no history of cancer on his side of the family either. Um, certainly not pancreatic cancer. So my next question, I'm sure my audience, uh, the, or not my audience, but the audience, listening, um, has heard this come up often, um, genetics, um, because you know, there's so much that's been done in the last five years with genetics yeah. and, you know, breast and pancreatic are, are linked a lot with, uh, the BRCA yeah. mutation. So 
Yeah. Is there anything under the hood genetically that? No, I was tested and, um, yeah, no, no. So nothing genetically. And my breast surgeon, when she found out, um, that I'd been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, she immediately went back with a fine tooth comb and just went through everything. Everything. What did I miss? What did we miss? What did we get? And I was, she and she had other surgeons look at it too, and I was 100% clear when <laughs> they did the surgery in October of 2019. Yeah, and it's it's you know to hear the story. I mean, as I said before, I was talking to uh, the gentleman from Italy. You know, I know we were kidding about the names, but we were talking on the previous podcast. You know, with him about you know, how long the question came up was, you know, in his professional opinion, like how long does this thing just kind of germinate in someone's body? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you know, there, there's some studies that say 10 years until symptoms present. And then you hear a story like yours where you go in the year before for breast and you assume if there was anything in the lungs or anywhere else that would like pop up or even, you know, that's the frustrating thing. I mean, there isn't a, there isn't a one, there isn't one test for all cancer, right? That we have. And I guess that's like a frustration that I'm sure many families and many, many people, you know, have that we just don't have it. And clearly with pancreatic cancer, there's, there's no early detection. I mean, we're, we're trying to work really fast yeah. on a protocol, but you know, it's, it becomes like this, this, uh, you know, and part of the awareness is the symptom game, right? Like if you have yeah. symptoms, you know, that, but the symptoms are so vague and like you said, gallstones, like, that's what, yeah, you know, in pregnancy, that's the first time I've ever heard of someone yeah. having a positive pregnancy test, but actually having, you know, yep. cancer. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, you know, there was no, um, there was no medical rationale for the breast cancer for me to have CAT scans. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, it was the mammograms and it was the, um, the, the lymph node testing they do, they do during the surgery. Correct. Um, and if the lymph nodes and, are good, then there's no reason right. to go any further. Right. So like by the yeah. book, like there's yep. no, there was no spread or anything from what they yeah. pulled. Yeah. And my lymph nodes were clear wow. and, and she just removed, she removed three, um, just because they're the three biggest culprits of spread. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, so she removed those three just as a, as a precaution. Um, but they were, they were clear. And so there was, there was nothing to indicate that further, um, imaging was needed or, you know, further testing was needed because everything, you know, the biopsies and the lymph nodes came back clear. And then you said like you were having in the fall of 2020, you said you weren't feeling great. And I know you said you mentioned gallstones. So was it like a abdominal pain or digestion pain that you were having that kind of kicked, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it was actually, it was, um, I thought I had heartburn. Um, so I just, because we were moving, I wasn't eating as healthy. Yeah. Um, uh, so I, I thought it was heartburn. I thought it was, you know, just stress on my body from, mm-hmm. you know, doing all the moving. And it was just this kind of, um, generalized discomfort that sat behind my rib cage. And, and then, and that was the other reason why I thought it was from, you know, the nerves kind of regenerating mm-hmm. from my surgery because I was doing so much lifting and moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, and the pain was behind, my, my breastbone. Um, and then it got worse and worse with it. it, For about, I would say for about two to three weeks, it just felt like constant indigestion, like heartburn. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the last week before I ended up in the emergency room, I was, it was actually hurt to breathe. Um, Mm -hmm. I couldn't take full deep breaths. Um, and it, it just this pain just sat under right under my rib cage, right under my sternum. And of course, cause I thought it was indigestion. I was doing yoga and Pilates and, and I was like, Oh, I can work through this. Yeah. 
um, you know, doing all these crazy yoga moves to, to try to help with digestion. And, um, it was actually, I was the one who probably started causing the pain in my liver, um, because I was, you know, rubbing and pushing and doing all these, these yoga moves. And, um, cause that's, that's what sent me to the emergency room was this just severe pain in my liver and the radiating pain in my shoulder. And if you look up symptoms of gallbladder, mm-hmm. um, it, it, those are the symptoms, radiating pain in the shoulder. Um, you know, it, I had all the symptoms of gallbladder issues and, um, certainly a doctor coming into the room to tell me that I was being admitted because, masses showed up on the imaging was not what we were expecting. That's crazy. And so, but you, during that time, like your appetite was probably, you were, you were still eating and just was that digestive yeah. backwash, yeah, I, I guess you would say like that. Yeah. Reflux. I wasn't eating as much because I, I thought that, you know, I had heartburn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uncomfortable. Yeah. So people naturally, when you have heartburn, you don't necessarily, you know, run to the fridge yeah. to, to shove yeah. food down your throat because you know, it's going to be uncomfortable. Yeah. And I had, I had lost, I don't know, maybe eight pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it was the, the two weeks that we were moving. And, yeah. and so there was nothing really obvious to, to indicate that something was really wrong until those last couple of days. And in, in fairness, we always say this hindsight's always 2020, right? Like you can always look back and like when you're in the, when you're in the midst of a move, you got stuff going on, you're not eating, right. You know, like in those moments. And I think that's, what's just so hard. And I mean, I hope no one listening and, you know, we've said this on previous, you know, it's hard to, to look back because hindsight is 2020. It's not like that we're trying to beat up on anyone. I think it's just, you know, maybe it's a yeah. little bit easier now, like looking back, like you, it's easy for us to say, oh, what about this, that, that situation? But again, when you're in that moment, like you got a million yeah. things going on, you're not thinking that. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So again, taking notes here, I've got, I've got a couple really good questions here, but I, I want to ask this one first. Sure. You mentioned Dr. Shipper. Uh, Dr. Shipper's yeah. a good friend of ours here at Project Purple, who's been on our board for quite some time, um, is an amazing, amazing surgical oncologist out yeah. of uh, Hartford Healthcare, is actually head of surgical oncology there in the Hartford yep. um, area. But yep. they've got branches now all over the state. How is that? I mean, so, and I say, how is that? Like, you, you work with these people and then whether you've been on the other side of that, you know, I guess in the, in the, in the shoes of the doctor or the nurses, the clinicians, but then now you're on the other side yeah, and with people that you've spent a lot of time with, um, yeah. you know, throughout the years, like how is that mentally? Um, you know, for me, these, these, you know, Dr. Shipper and uh, Dr. Lawrence, my breast surgeon, um, they, they're such great people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just, they're really easy to talk to, whether, whether you're in the office as a patient or, or um, talking to them over lunch or at a meeting. Um, so that. I just always felt comfortable with, with the physicians that I work with and, and then shifting gears, becoming a patient. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I felt super safe and I trusted that, you know, they were going to do what was best for me. Um, and I, I never, I, I felt, you know, I think a lot of people with that receive, um, any kind of diagnosis. It doesn't even have to be cancer. It could be a rotator cuff injury. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody wants to make sure, well, let me get a second opinion and, and, and let me make sure um, that this physician is, has my best interest in, in, in mind and that this treatment course is, is what is best for me. Um, I never once questioned anything 
that they were recommending because I had so much trust in the work that they do um, as professionals um, and, and being their peer. Um, I, I just always trusted everything that they recommended. And, and that being said, my oncologist still recommended, he said, I want you to go get a second opinion. I want you to go talk to Dana Farber. Hmm. Um, and I went up to Dana Farber and they, um, said we wouldn't change a thing. This is exactly what we would do for someone with your diagnosis and your age. And these are the chemos that we would have you on. Uh, we wouldn't change a thing. Um, so it, you know, I, I felt it, it was great to, to have to hear that, but I didn't, I didn't need to hear it either. Uh, cause I just, I just trust these people so much. So do you think you did that out of respect for those doctors that you have so much trust in and faith as like a friend, yeah. you know, like knowing that like, Hey, you're, you're in good hands. Like you don't need to go anywhere else, but you know. Yeah. I mean, for Dr. Byrne, my oncologist, when he, you know, for he, he said, I want you to go get a second opinion. And I, I think it, it was, um, you know, which is, is my husband just was so impressed with him in that moment. Um, you know, cause I was like, I don't want, I'm, I'm happy with you. I don't want a second opinion. Yeah. I don't want a different oncologist. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but we went and it was at, at that point, it was really more about, are there any immunotherapy trials? Are there any other treatment options that, you know, Dana Farber is a bigger, a bigger hospital system. Do they have access to things that, my oncologist didn't have access to, mm -hmm. um, and they didn't. And it, you know, so it was, I'm again, I'm glad that I went, but I didn't, I didn't need to hear, um, somebody else confirm that Dr. Byrne put me on the right chemos. Um, I did though, at, because I work with these doctors, um, I did ask the Dana Farber doctor, the one question I refused to ask, my medical team is, you know, what is actually going to kill me? Um, why'd you do that? Why? Um, I, you know, it's, I guess those are the moments where, you know, you know, these people, you have lunch with them, you're in meetings with them and then you're their patient. Um, so there's some, there's some tough questions and it's hard to see the look in their, their eyes, you know, mm -hmm. like that, that, that morning when, when Dr. Shipper came in, to my hospital room to tell me it was not operable. It's, it's hard to see the look uh, mm -hmm. in their eyes because you know them. Mm -hmm. um, so I saved it for a doctor I didn't know was that really tough question. And and uh, he answered it, and now I know. A, a question just came up, Jill. Yeah. Why ask that question? Um. Because I don't, and, and what I mean by that is, I, I yeah. don't know if many, so, and, and you know, there, there, I've said this often on this this podcast, like me as the interviewer here, like I'm taking notes and there's there's kind of, you're on this journey, right? And there's an, an arc, arc to this journey that you're on and the experiences, you know, and you've had very unique experience, right? You've worked with these people, you were in the healthcare system, you understand the healthcare system. And then now you become the patient on the other side. Yeah. And I often say like, you know, I think patients know, like I was with a family on, on Saturday and their dad is battling and, you know, um, they had concerns about their dad. And I said, well, I think your dad knows the reality. And I always said, like my mom, going back to my experience, my mom was always worried that my dad, she didn't want to give my dad enough information. She just wanted him to fight and continue to fight. But I said, Ma, I think dad yeah. knows. Dad knows. You know, and I, and I guess that my question, you know, to why I ask that question is, is sometimes too much knowledge too much? <laughs> or, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, you're, like you said before, you know, you're in the fight, you know what the statistics yeah. are, but, you know, why ask that question? Um. I wanted to, well, I wanted to know, you know, I, I, I work in the medical field cause I'm curious. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and I wanted to know, but, but that being said, I mean, how often do we hear about people passing away? Um, they had cancer, but it wasn't the cancer that actually caused the death. Um, so, you know, I wanted to know, and I wanted to understand, you know, what is chemo going to do to my body? Mm -hmm. What, you know, um, and I didn't, and I was ignorant to these things. I didn't know a lot about chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that, that physician at Dana-Farber, you know, he said, you know, it's, it's going to be three different things. It's going to be that the chemo stops working. Mm-hmm. Um, the, or your, or that your body just can't handle the chemo anymore mm-hmm. or you get an infection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's really the three different ways it's going to go. Um, so, you know, my husband and I know, you know, is it, is it good? Is it good to have that information? My husband and I know that when I start dropping weight again, when I, you know, when I can't keep weight on anymore, um, if I start getting sick because my white blood cell count is not where it needs to be, um, then we know that we need to start doing things differently um, or, you know, having different conversations and the, you know, we're very good, bad, or indifferent, you know, we're very uh, pragmatic people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so having the information ahead of time so we can adjust to a course correction as much as we're able to do a course correction was really it was important for me and um, I, you know, it's important for my husband too. It's powerful stuff. So having that knowledge and planning accordingly, right. As you said, if I'm hearing it correctly, like, okay, so if weight starts to drop, then we address that. Right. Um, If the chemo stops, then we need to address that. And here's the plan of action. And I, and just again, taking the notes and being the listener here, like you talked about the five, 10, 15 plan. Sounds like you're a planner. I'd assume you and your (laughs) husband plan (laughs) just a little bit. Yes. Just a little bit. So I think though, but if you look like, so this is really fascinating to me. I get kind of geeked out here. Jill, like you, you, you know, your, your journey here. And then this fight that you have, but then you're, you're planning, like you have this plan going on that's working Yeah. and this yeah. is what's going to defy the odds and what is defying the odds. So. I hope so. Yeah. Um, we even, we even had down, down to, you know, even with COVID, uh, we have this kind of phased approach to my ability to travel. Um, you know, I've got a, a weekend trip planned in April. And if that goes well, we've got a one week trip planned in May. And if that goes well, um, we're going to attempt a, a trip that includes flying. And then if that goes well, then we're going to book one of our bucket list trips and that's to South Africa to another safari. Um, but, we're not ready to rip the bandaid off and just jump into a flight to South Africa. <laughs> um, well, yeah, there's steps that you need to get there before, but you have yeah. that plan though. That's right. the important piece. So right. many people just fly off the seat of their pants. Right. And, but having a right. plan is hopefully going to get you to that trip yeah. and get you to that and, next adventure. And, and I think it helped for me, it helps with having these little, uh, phased goals. Um, you know, the, the weekend trip and then the one week trip, you know, having these little, these little goals. Um, you know, I, I thought that, you know, my back in the fall, I thought that, you know, I was, I was never going to ride horses again and that mm-hmm. I, you know, I wasn't going to be able to ever go to a horse show again. And I'm doing a horse show in the end of April. So um, awesome. you know, so those, those are the kinds of things that, you know, are really for me, they keep me motivated. And I, I think, half the battle with this for me has been maintaining a positive attitude and having things that force me to get out of bed, force me to get off the couch. Um, and, and really it kind of forced me to get out there. It, it, 
the first couple months were really hard because I was so sick. It was really easy for me to just sit and hide. Um, and really kind of, you know, I was, I was coming to terms with my own mortality and, and those are, those are some tough inner conversations to have. Um, and so those are some tough, tough things to work through. And, you know, I, I don't remember the exact day, but it, I just remember like, okay, I'm, I'm feeling better and now I have to do better. And I started doing better. So on that note, and this was one of my questions, because you mentioned earlier, like, you, you know, that first chemo cocktail, like really knocked you down and you had that yeah. really um, powerful, impactful conversation with your family in Christmas because you didn't think, you know, you could get through this. But then everything changed after the chemo cocktail. So was that kind of the turning point? And you just mentioned it here, you know, in the beginning. And and I do want to talk about COVID. I mean, it's crazy. Like, you know, there's still this global pandemic happening and you experienced (laughs) this cancer during the global pandemic. Um, But to stay, you know, on point here, was that, what was the turning point? Um, Definitely with coming off of that, that one chemo. Um, that made a huge difference. It was causing, and I always murder the names of them, so I'm not even going to attempt. Um, <laughs> it was causing all the neuropathy you said, I think. In it, the- yeah, it was causing neuropathy. So I, I couldn't, you know, I would, I'm on a two week chemo cycle and I was feeling okay two out of every 14 days. Yeah. Um, you know, so I could barely hold the neuropathy was really starting to take effect and, and I'm getting, you know, neuropathy during the winter, which, you know, made it even worse. worse yeah. Um, but I couldn't, I could barely hold the rain while I was riding my horse, you know? So, you know, and I said to, I said to my oncologist, if I can't ride, if I have to give up riding, I'm not going to get through this. And that's when we bartered for five rounds versus I wanted to come off at four rounds. And and he promised if you can get through one more round, I promise that will be the last one. Um, so I made it to to the five rounds, and and that chemo was also causing smooth muscle spasms, and that was where all of my pain and discomfort was coming from. Wow. Um, and it took I don't know probably about three to four weeks to really kind of work its way through my system, where I was not having those types of symptoms anymore the feeling in my, my hands and feet were starting to come back. And, um, I came off of it right, right around Christmas, New Year's timeframe. And within, within four weeks, I was feeling really good. And I, I remember the day that I noticed that I was feeling good is, um, I, have a tendency to be a little bit of a busybody, and I noticed that I was running Couldn't up tell, and down stairs. <laughs> I love I, it though. Uh, yeah, with without like, and I and I I ran up and down stairs, and I all of a sudden I just I, I yelled out of like excitement because I had just run up and down stairs without thinking about it. Um, so awesome. where two months ago, you know, I needed I needed my husband to help me up and down stairs. Um, and so it was, I remember that moment and I was like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm back. I'm back. And you know, now my, my family jokes with me, they're like, can you just sit down and relax? Can you just calm? <laughs> Do <I'm> less. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's um, awesome. That's awesome. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So in the two, two parts of this, the second part was, you know, COVID. So what has this been like, you know, dealing with, you know, this global pandemic? I mean, clearly you were in the midst of when, you know, things weren't open. Yeah. Family couldn't go in with you. I'm not sure if they can go in with now. I know everything's changing. I mean, I, I think the one benefit, if there is a benefit to this, um, you know, I, I guess I, I, I don't know if this is considered a benefit, but I think I feel that Connecticut has done a very good job, right? Our numbers yeah. have been pretty good. Um, 
you know, for the most part, we didn't have the massive surge that say New York or Houston um, or Texas, I should say for that matter, I think, um, you know, had a pretty bad surge there. Yeah. Um, so we've done a very good job here in the state and I feel like, you know, access to quality healthcare also as well. So there hasn't been, you know, like areas of or hot pockets where, you know, COVID has just exploded. But how has that been, you know, cause I know we've had people on the podcast over the last year, you know, just talking about that journey, you know, how different it is because of COVID. Yeah. So, you know, I think, so this, for me, um, this has been a, it's been a little bit of a blessing and a curse. So Mm -hmm. the blessing being that because of all of the hand sanitizing and the mask wearing, I have not, um, knock on wood, I've not gotten sick once. Wow. Um, you know, no, no colds, no nothing. Um, I, I think that's because of all of the mask wearing yep. and the hand washing. Um, the, the curse being that I really wasn't going anywhere anyway. <laughs> um, so I remember at Christmas time, you know, it was one of the days I was feeling okay. And we were going to go to Home Depot or Lowe's to get some Christmas decorations and or Christmas lights or whatever it was. And I went into the, you know, I'm all masked up and my, my husband's like, keep your hands in your pockets and I don't want you to touch anything. And I was like, okay. And we go into the store and you know, there's people wearing their masks, but their nose is out <laughs> and they were, um, and they weren't keeping a six foot radius yep. away from me. And I had a panic attack. Um, and I, I think it was more around being like, I hadn't been in public. I hadn't been around people other than my immediate friends and family that we were allowing to come visit. Mm -hmm. Um, the other, the other part that is also a blessing is 90% of my friends also work in healthcare. So they've been vaccinated since January. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've just been really, you know, lucky in that sense um, that I've been able to maintain regular visits with my friends and family because of the such strict COVID uh, practices that they had. Mm-hmm. Um, that we were able, I was, I'm still able to to spend time with the most important people in my life. It's important stuff. I mean, I, you know, the, the, the whole mass thing and the sanitizing is, is really amazing how it, it, you know, what it's done, I should say, you know, like colds and flus and, you know, I just, I've always said, you know, some of this is common sense, but I mean, naturally when you're talking about the world population, I think common sense kind of goes out the window, but, yeah. um, so, you know, the whole sanitary piece of this is fascinating how, you know, people are so proud to be washing their hands after they leave the restroom, which is like, I think something that that's like a learned skill <laughs> as a child, right? Yeah. Shocking is right. And I'm not trying to make light of it. I'm just like, it's really fascinating. You know, I, I, know. I was reading something about that and they were saying just like, you know, the, the, you know, the epidemiologist, you know, uh, predict that because of, you know, people just washing their hands so often that, you know, like the flu vaccine, the flu virus, you know, has been eliminated along with the mask wearing and everything else, which is just so fascinating. Like why we weren't doing this like for the last 20 years, but that's another podcast on another day. Um, I want to ask, and you've mentioned it a couple of times, but you mentioned family and friends. Yeah. And during this, this journey that you've been on, what is, what is that meant to you? And, and I want to, I have a couple of sidebar questions too, but I'd love to start sure. with that. Like what, what is your family and friends meant to you during this time, especially the second journey? Yeah. Um, this time around it, it has meant everything. My, um, and you know, we, we, I have to go back a little bit to this, to buying this house that we bought in Salem. Um, it's crazy. It's just the two of us and, and um, my husband's kids, his youngest is actually turning 16 today. Oh, wow. So but the house we bought had all of these extra rooms and all of this extra space. And um, 
rooms that we were never going to use. And what, when I got diagnosed, my sister and her family, we set up what, what would be intended to be a formal living room, but a room that we would never use. Um, we turned it into to their little suite. Oh, so, cool. you know, the kids have bunk beds and my sister and her husband have their own bed. And, um, it, you know, so spending time, spending quality time, we started doing Sunday family dinners again. Oh. Um, you know, how often do families still do yeah. Sunday family dinners? Yeah. You know, it was, you know, doing that kind of stuff was really, really important to me that, you know, um, if, if everybody wants to spend time with me, it's going to be meaningful. Um, and, and we're going to make the most of our time and we're going to do fun things. And, you know, my niece and nephew are eight and nine and cancer is scary. Mm -hmm. And I wanted, whenever they're here with me, I want this, I don't want it to be scary for them. I don't want it to be about auntie being sick. I want it to be, you know, a very lighthearted kind of magical place for them. Um, so it's, it's been really important for me. Um, and I, I think I used the term earlier about, you know, what's going to fill my cup mm -hmm. that day and, you know, seeing my niece and nephew, seeing, you know, having quality time with my sister and my brother-in-law um, having time with my husband's kids, those are all things that fill my cup. Um, and my family and my close friends have just been amazing at, um, being accessible and, and being available and, um, not disappearing because it's hard. They don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. And, they've, they've been present and they've been with me. And I just, I'm, I'm so lucky that I have such amazing people in my life that are supporting me through this. It's powerful stuff. And, and my next question, and you may have just answered it, but we get a lot of calls into the office here. And a lot of them are like, Hey, my friend just got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer or, you know, a, a family member. What's the best thing I can do for them? And I know in the previous uh, part of the, the podcast, in the, in the first part, you said, you know, in the beginning, it was very, you know, people were just didn't know what to do, right? Yeah. Um, and just would, you know, they look at you like, you know, you're already gone. But I, I think that's something that I think, you know, human nature, I guess you would say, like people really yeah. struggle with. So yeah. we love sharing, you know, what's maybe, and, and maybe there's a situation that maybe it was a family member or a friend, someone that just did something that was just so awesome. Um, if you could share that with our audience, we'd love to hear what that is. Um, I have one of my, one of my best friends who is also in healthcare. She, um, knowing what, what chemo does yeah. to to people with the symptoms, she made me a symptoms basket that included all of the things that nobody wants to talk about, like <laughs> I'm nausea, and yeah. nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. So yeah. um, it was a very comical gift basket. Um, it, you know, so those were the kinds of things, and and keeping the humor about it because yeah. it doesn't. It, it's it's sad and it's scary, and and. Um, that's not, that's never going to change, but, um, like it's okay to make jokes. It's okay to, um, to laugh. It's okay to laugh about, you know, that I've got puke bags buried in every corner of the house. Um, <laughs> it, it's okay to joke about those things. Yeah. And, and, you know, if I can't, if I can't laugh at myself through this, um, I don't, I, I need to be able to laugh at myself through this. So, so when my, my friends and family were able to laugh with me, that was really, really important. And then just, just being with me, just, they didn't need to even say anything. Sometimes it was just because I wasn't feeling well. Um, just, you know, sitting next to me and, and being quiet and watching a movie or, you know, having a cup of tea with me. Um, you know, I, I didn't, I don't, I didn't always need to, to 
process every thought I had um, with them. It was really more just about their presence. It's powerful stuff. Um, I've got two questions left for you, but okay. I have one that just came up. Sure. And you've mentioned this a couple of times of filling the cup every day. Mm-hmm. Is this something that was like, if we look back at Jill's life, like something you did in high school and college and middle school, or maybe something that a parent, you know, you know, inspired you or, um, you know, was something that you learned early on from your parents or maybe a relative, mm-hmm. Because I, I mean, to think that way, Jill, and, and this is the, and I'll say, I mean, I, I've done over 150 podcast episodes with a lot of patients, and I always find that there's this outlook that you have, this this attitude, this mindset. I guess is probably the best term. It doesn't happen overnight, and it's probably yeah. something that's been ingrained with you the, your whole life. And I talk about this arc that you're on with this journey in cancer, but I do see a lot of times there's things that happen in the life previous to this Yeah, experiences that um, prepare you. Well, yeah, yes. And, and, you know, one being losing my father, I, I was, I was barely, I think I was eight years old when my father passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was 39 years old, um, wow. when he passed away. So, you know, that's, that's one thing, right? You know, mm-hmm. so it, that life, life is short and, and it can end at any moment. Um, but that being said, I worked a lot of hours and I spent a lot of hours sitting in an office. Um, it, you know, empty parking garages mm-hmm. because I would work so late, you know, so I, I don't, I don't want to pretend that I, had this perfect life work life balance and and you know was um I worked a lot cuz I'm a busybody um but I started my career in healthcare um actually in in behavioral health and uh I ran an adult residential addiction program for um about a half a decade hmm. Um, and that's how, that's how I started my career with Hartford healthcare. And so I, I am actually a therapist, um, and I'm not good at taking my own advice. I will admit that. Um, but working with heroin addicts for 11 years, mm-hmm. um, that, that is really kind of where that kind of fill my cup mm-hmm. came from. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do what feeds your soul. Um, and, and if, if you know better, do better. Yeah. Working with them is, is really where those kind of thoughts and, and, um, drive came from. It's powerful. It's, I mean, it's getting you through this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, that there's so many, there's so many sayings and slogans from, uh, addiction treatment that, that I apply now is, you know, one, one day at a time, one moment at a time, um, move a muscle, change a thought. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but know, this all, just, but Jill, this all is, this is truth. I mean, like, yeah. you know, to think about like, you know, sometimes we need these things, uh, you know, some people, um, you know, go through these, uh, these experiences in order to, you know, wake up, I guess, or smell the coffee is another one, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but I mean, think about it. it. You said this before, nothing, tomorrow's not promised to us, right? Right. Today is what right. we have. And so if we fill that cup every day, make it the best day that we can, not that you have yeah. to jump on a plane and go to Disney world and ride all the, the, the rides and, or have like this, romantic magical experience every day but in that moment and what we have if we can fill that cup every day that's life that's living yeah yeah you know yeah and the alternative is what lamenting being miserable yeah and and that's the you know the 
an, another saying, you, you get back what you put out. And, yeah. and so if, if I, with this diagnosis, if I walked around just kind of wallowing in the, in, you know, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. Um, well, we're all going to die, but Correct. you know, my timeline's a little shorter. Um, but you know, I, I, it was really important to me that I not let it, um, control me that, you know, I'm going to control it and I'm going to live my every day on my terms. So powerful. Um, and so I, I think I'm doing a pretty good job of it so far, but it's some days I feel selfish. And those, those are the hard days where I feel selfish because I'm like, Oh, I went for a hike with my dogs and I rode my horse and I, you know, watched a movie with my husband and you know, what am I giving, what am I giving back to my community and what am I, you know, what am I doing outside of my little bubble? Um, and those are the days I feel selfish. Well, Jill, you just shared uh, a lot with us over the last, uh, we're almost on an hour here, and um, there's no reason to feel selfish because you're inspiring a lot of people um, with how you're battling this. I'm sure you inspire your family, your friends, now our audience with how you're battling every day this thing called pancreatic cancer, but filling the cup every day which is, yeah. you know, honorable and amazing and so, so powerful. Um, I've got two questions left here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're both, um, I always say, kind of, well, the last one's a little loaded, but there's no right or wrong to either one of these questions. Someone listening at home, maybe they just have gotten a diagnosis. What's the best bit of advice that you could give that person? Oh, um, and there's no right or wrong to it. This is just yeah. your answer. Yeah. You know, in that, in that, those first few days in that immediate moment is, is, and I don't want to, I don't, I don't mean to come off as cliche with this, but, but you got to breathe, you know, you, you got to, you got to take a breath and, and you, you know, you got to really look around, you know, who, who do you have that is going to be part of your support system? Um, who's going to hold your hand on those scary, those scary moments? Um, and, and if, if you don't have those people, there's, there's, there's places like project purple. There's, um, there's people, there, there are other people out there that are more than willing to offer support and, and it's just so just don't be afraid to ask for help is really, I think what I would tell anybody. No one does it alone. No. And you, you can't do it alone. No, you can't. And there's plenty of groups, like you said, um, and people, whether they're at the mm -hmm. institutions, at the hospitals, there's there's resources and support staff. Yeah. Um, there's yep. groups all across the country, all across the world, actually. So yeah, no one no one should ever fight this alone. Yeah. Last question, and mm -hmm. this one is a tough one, but there again, no right or wrong. What is your definition of pancreatic cancer? <laughs> Um, I view pancreatic cancer as, um, it's been this bizarre gift for me. Mm -hmm. it, it's a very, it's a twisted gift, right? You know, I, uh, it has given me some things that I really don't want. Um, but it also, it, it, it's also given me, um, a lot of reasons to feel very blessed and very lucky and the people in my life and the people that I know, um, the things that I'm able to do are not lost on me. And in, in those ways, it's been a gift. Powerful. Thank you for sharing your journey, Jill, and for um, 
fighting this the way you're fighting it. Um, I, you know, coming off of uh, the pandemic, and you know, we all know that this disease is not an easy one. But it's amazing and so powerful to hear you speak on how you're fighting this every day. So thank you for allowing me to interview you and also for you to share your journey with our audience. My last awesome. question, My pleasure. last question, and this is easy. I know we talked about this before we hit record, but if someone listening mm -hmm. wants to connect with you, maybe, you know, they, they heard your story, have a similar experience um, and want to reach out to you, where's the best way or the best place for them to do that? I should say. Um, I would say email, um, shoot me an email. I'm, I'm, those old work habits are hard to, are hard to give up. <laughs> yeah. And what's your email for our audience? Uh, I'll spell it cause it's long. Uh, it's J I L L E N E dot B E R T O L I N I at gmail.com. Awesome. Jill, thank you for sharing your journey with us. And I've taken so many notes here, but I'm going to leave this one with, uh, leave this podcast with this note is you are filling the cup every day. I love that. Thank you for being a guest thank on the Project Purple podcast. Oh, thank you so much. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. If you like what you hear today, please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts feel free to share this podcast. And until next time, be safe. Thanks for listening.